Hello and welcome to Take My Advice, I'm Not Using It. My name is Ollie Henderson and on today's episode we're going to be talking about diversity, equity and inclusion with Tamika Curry-Smith. Tamika's had a long career in diversity roles going back to 2002 at Deloitte. Over the last five years she's been head of diversity and inclusion for Mercedes-Benz in the US and also vice president of global diversity and inclusion at Nike. She now advises early stage startups and is the president of the TCS Group, which provides HR and diversity, equity and inclusion services to a wide variety of clients across various industries. In the episode, you'll hear us talk about some practical tips for companies that are looking to put DEI at the heart of their strategy. We'll cover why fear of doing the wrong thing can sometimes inhibit people from starting the process. And related to that, we're going to explore the idea of why progress doesn't mean perfection. If you enjoyed the podcast as ever, please make sure you subscribe. Also check out the newsletter Future Work Life on Substack. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Tamika Curry-Smith. So Tamika, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, I wanted to ask you a, a big, broad question to start with. So we've seen a tumultuous last 12 months generally in society, but for lots of organizations as well. I'm wondering how you've seen different organizations respond to the challenge and what's differentiated those that have responded best to those that have struggled. Yeah, I mean, great question. And you're right. It's been it's been a really interesting year on a number of fronts between COVID and all the disproportionate impacts on different communities. Um, obviously, the the racial and social justice movement in the wake of the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and others. And then I think subsequently, you know, the the calls for focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion that came probably mo- more so from external forces. Hmm. And so when you think about how companies and organizations have reacted, I mean, the reality is it's a full spectrum. You have some who've done very little other than post support on social media um, in terms of, you know, making statements and things of that sort. And then you have the other extreme, which is organizations that are really really focusing on it and saying, you know what, we've had an awakening and we need to put uh, all of our efforts into this. And, And so when I say what differentiates those two extremes I think it's it's a holistic approach to the work. And mm. um, when I see the organizations that are doing a good job, they look at diversity, equity, and inclusion really broadly. I use this kind of four-prong framework of workforce, which is the people in your organization, workplace, which is the culture and the environment, marketplace, which is all of your business-facing initiatives and customer and consumer-focused efforts, and then community, which is obviously, you know, your connections to the community, philanthropic, et cetera. And so the organizations that are really doing a good job are looking at all four of those. And they're accompanying that with communication, both internally and externally in terms of transparency. And then more importantly, they're focused on metrics, measurement, and accountability. And I think that really is what differentiates those that are taking it seriously and driving towards change and those that are um, still trying to find their way. Yeah. And on that last point, inevitably, there are many still trying to find their way. I mean, within 12 months, it would be difficult from a standing start to suddenly Mm -hmm. be on top of all of that. So is, is it true then that 
those organizations that were already thinking in this way have adapted pretty well. Those that were operating from a standing start are just at the working out stage. You know, I've, I, I would say it depends. I've seen some organizations that, to your point, started from a standing start, but are really making progress. And right. I, I think it really goes back to how committed are you to the work? And are you um, mobilizing in a way that you would towards um, any other business initiative? And and I would say that's the differentiator. Is the organizations doing this well, even those that are new to this, are approaching it just like they would any other business initiative? And I, and I always use this example of, let's say a company had a new product they were rolling out or a new marketing strategy. They would develop a strategy, number one, right? It wouldn't be tactical. You would start with a strategy and certainly tactics support that. But you would start with a strategy. You would determine the resources you need to execute that strategy. uh, And that means people and budget. You would develop metrics or measurements that you want to um, use to gauge. Are you hitting those targets or goals? You would track your progress and then you would hold people accountable if progress wasn't being made. And so I would say even those that are new to the game, if they take that approach, they're doing a much better job. Uh, there, unfortunately, are many who, who aren't taking that approach and who are, I would say, you know, maybe taking a little bit more of a Band-Aid and let me do a training session here, or let me do a listening session there. And that's not strategic and is not ultimately going to drive change or outcomes. Hmm. And so I think that that's what differentiates it. And it's probably fair again to say that those companies that put DEI at a heart of their strategy broadly are going to be more successful. So it doesn't seem like tokenism. I, I talk about, you know, it has to be integrated into how you operate. It can't be a standalone or something on the, on the side. DEI needs to support both your people and business strategies and be seen as an enabler of both. Hmm. Is there, though, a skills gap or a knowledge gap? Because I'd imagine there are companies that are afraid of getting it wrong. And I think that sometimes holds people back. If you're worried about getting it wrong, perhaps sometimes it's easier to do nothing at all. They mentioned that training in and of itself can't just solve the problem or you can't just drop in and do a training session. But I guess we have to bridge that gap. We have to be able to educate people and just take away some of the fear because I think that's probably true of businesses of all shapes and sizes that there's a awareness that they need to do something, perhaps just not quite sure how to go about it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I see it every day where fear paralyzes people and organizations from acting in the space. They're afraid of saying or doing the wrong thing, and so they do nothing. Hmm. But I think what we've learned over the last year in particular, I mean, I would say I've always known it, but many people are, are starting to see it. Like silence isn't an option. Being silent is truly being complicit and being an enabler of the inequities that we know are pretty rampant in society and in organizations. And so the reality is you have to do something. Yeah. Hopefully you can hear me over the torrential rain in the background, which is (laughs) now battering my window. You, You alluded there to the fact that you've probably been cognizant of these differences the inequities of of work and society but certainly from a work point of view you've been doing this for 20 years right so Mm -hmm. in those 20 years you must have seen lots of progress made but equally you must have been frustrated with the significant lack of progress in in other areas what would you pinpoint as having been a positive over the past 20 years 
Yeah, I mean, to your point, there we've made tremendous strides. I mean, I think about when I first started doing this work, um, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, it wasn't even, I would say, a widely seen practice. And so the companies that were focusing on it were really trailblazers in the space. And so when we look at the progression of, of um, you know, everything from representation of, of uh, people from underrepresented and marginalized communities in, you know, in organizations, when we look at, I would say, a huge focus and, and evolution and awareness about many of these issues, changing terminology, changing norms around what's acceptable and what's not in the workplace, uh, systems that have been put in place around, you know, if someone is experiencing um, something that they can report it, that they, you know, that they have avenues to take, whereas in the past that wasn't the case. Um, when I think about business strategies that are now really uh, aware of and cognizant and focused on uh, underrepresented and marginalized communities, so products and service offerings that are more broad in their scope, and certainly same thing like community-wise having philanthropic strategies that are broad and, and, and understand how you can support and uplift different communities. So progress has definitely been made. But I'm a big yes and person, and I think, you know, two things can be true at the same time. So, yes, we have made progress, and there's still a long way to go. Mm. You know, when, when I name all of those things, there have been there have definitely been changes, but there's also moments every day where I scratch my head in frustration because I'm like, you know, talking to a leader or working with an organization or I read an article or something comes up, you know, in the media around um, people and organizations just not getting it right. And so mm. I think that the good news is that we are evolving. We are headed in the right direction. I'm, I'm kind of a naturally optimistic person. And so I believe that what has happened over the last year has opened up a lot of hearts and minds. And it also, to be honest, has created some pressure that I think needed to be put on organizations to do something more in this space as well. And so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we will continue to, to make strides. I wonder if there's a generational change as well. I mean, with the younger generation coming through, I know you've got a, a son, I guess he'll be entering the workplace in what, so 10, 10 years or so, mm-hmm. 10, 15 years. Yeah. If you were to look at, ahead to when he's getting his first job, do you think things will look entirely different then? You know, what unexpected changes might, might we see at that point? Well, I think we're already starting to see them. Um, you know, all the, I would say, data and anecdotal research shows that the younger generations have a very different mindset about these issues and their tolerance level is much lower than the older generations who, you know, maybe accepted things they shouldn't have accepted um, or weren't as vocal as they could have been. And we see that's very different from these younger generations. So they are very quick to raise their hand, to speak up in organizations, to call out issues that they see. They, in fact, I mean, as early as the interviews, they're asking about things like sustainability and diversity, Mm -hmm. equity, and inclusion and, and they're serious. And, and the studies show that they make decisions on organizations that they will join based upon their um, 
their belief system and their actions in this space. Like I said, largely yeah. around sustainability and diversity, equity, and inclusion. I see that just continuing to the point where um, when I think about my son, he's 10 now, right? So when he joins the workforce, let's say in, in 10 years, he, I mean, I think it'll be very different in terms of um, a lot of these issues we're, we're struggling with right now. In 10 years, I think we would have pushed past them and, and really made some changes. And so everything from the culture, the environment, um, the the focus on, as I mentioned, transparency and, and, and outcomes, I think will just be normal. It'll be the expectation. It'll be... It just won't be a nice to have. It'll be a must have. And so I really see in the next 10 years being a a real game changer in this space. We also know accompanying that generational change, there's also a huge demographic shift happening. Mm. So, you know, in the United States, for example, you know, in in 2042 is the latest uh, estimate, but that the U.S. will be a, a majority minority, quote unquote, country, right? So that people of color will actually become the majority. So if you push that out for 10, in 10 years, we're 10 years away from that. And mm. so I think the power dynamic will also shift because the numbers will shift as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we've started to see a little bit of that in the political landscape, et cetera, you know, at least in the U.S. And I think globally, the awareness of these issues has also gone um gone through the roof and that it's not just a U.S. issue, things like race and ethnicity, the entire world is engaged on these challenges and thinking through inequity and how they can help be a part of the solution. So I see I see big changes in the next 10 years. Once again, maybe that's my optimistic self speaking, (laughs) but I, I do think that that it'll be a different conversation in 10 years. Yeah. I find this really fascinating. We're, we're a, a couple of weeks post a controversy, is probably fair to call it, that we saw happen at Basecamp. So yes. Basecamp's founders effectively stopped any conversations internally about matters related to politics and social justice. Their thoughts were, you don't come to work to talk about that stuff. So is it clear cut whether organizations should facilitate discussions of that nature? Mm-hmm. And I mean, before Basecamp, there was Coinbase, which which did yeah. this in 2020 and saw a, an exodus as well around saying that they, they weren't going to have political conversations. I would say um, the reality is in today's world, the topics that are considered political to one group are called everyday life to others. Mm. And so um, just as we've seen in other areas around, you know, COVID and things of that sort, things are being made political when they're really not. They're about people and they're about organizations and they're about performance and culture. And so I think the reality is organizations have no choice but to lean into this space. Now, there'll be a spectrum once again. There will be some that I think at a minimum, they have to have the conversations and create a space for the conversations. At the other extreme is those that are, you know, truly actively advocating and taking a stand. And I say, you know, there's there's a crawl before you walk. So you've got to at least start by having the conversations. I think the organizations that try to squash the conversations, 
um, are getting it wrong and will continue to. And I think we've started to see that. And here's one of the big shifts that I think has happened that some companies haven't realized is that, uh, and part of it is, is these, um, I would say, paradigms that we've learned in the past around like what should businesses do, what's the purpose of business, and then what is leadership is changed, right? So, so people are over businesses just existing to make money and the strictly, you know, capitalist viewpoint of why businesses exist. There is a viewpoint that businesses also should exist to do good and you can do well and do good at the same time. So I think that shift is is a really important one that some have missed. And then secondly, I would say the shift around leadership is that we 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 were taught growing up that you separate work and home life. You don't bring them together. You come to work and you don't talk about those things that are happening. But the reality is for underrepresented and marginalized people, there is no separation. They're they're living these issues every day and they don't get to leave them at the door when they come to work. It's still with them and they're carrying what they've done historically is carried those burdens in silence. And they're over it. And they, they're saying, I'm not willing to do that anymore. And so I think what has happened is this evolution of what is leadership and, and how do you create an, an inclusive environment? It means I've got to make space for all these different experiences that people are having. Just because I may not be experiencing them doesn't mean that they're not occurring and that I don't need to be aware of them and provide a supportive environment. So leaders, I think, are now being expected to like I said, create space for these discussions and also to show some humility, some vulnerability and show their own humanity as well by also talking about their own experiences. And so I think just the definition of leadership and of um, what is acceptable and work has definitely changed because uh, there's a recognition now that by creating that separation, what we've done is um, inadvertently disadvantaged even further those people that are already underrepresented and marginalized by making them shoulder the burden of these issues that others get to ignore and not talk about. And I think that time is over. Listening session. Explain explain how that works. Yeah. So what a listening session often is, is a facilitated discussion with employees and typically you have a particular topic. So I, I mentioned two uh, really quickly. One is, is the Asian American community. So you may, you want to center the topic of discrimination against the Asian American community as the topic. Oftentimes you will have employees that will share their experiences, maybe at work as well as in society as an Asian American and what they've experienced and it's meant to be an awareness building for those that participate that may be um, that may not be from the Asian community to understand the challenges, experiences, and the pain, uh, the trauma that many are are experiencing right now. And then, typically, what you want to do as a part of that is is facilitate something around allyship. You know, what can people do who aren't from that community to support? How can they educate themselves more? So you, you typically maybe provide some resources at the end for people uh, after the conversation is, is over. So that's a listening session. Um, unconscious bias training, you know, typically touches on the fact that as human beings, we all have biases, how those biases impact the workplace and everything from 
the way decisions are made and, and for example, recruiting or in promotions, um, everyday conversations, how, how people are conducting meetings, et cetera. And then, so you typically help people understand what the different types of bias, the impact of those bias, what it looks like, and then give them tools to mitigate bias. So how to, to bring the unconscious into the conscious so that uh, they hopefully won't um, uh, make those mistakes in the future. And then employee resource groups or business resource groups are typically um, groups of employees in an organization that come together around um, a particular diversity dimension, and they're usually from an underrepresented or marginalized group. So many organizations, for example, will have a group for women, a, a group for for Black or African-American employees, uh, the Latinx and Hispanic community, the LGBTQ plus community, veterans, people with disabilities, uh, et cetera. And, and those individuals are really focused on how do they help um, a framework that I use. It's called the four C's, career, culture, community, and consumer. How can they help the organization integrate understandings and knowledge um, and business strategies from their community uh, to make both the business and the culture and the people in the organization better? It's really helpful. I know that you typically have worked within large organizations, and I guess a lot of your clients remain large organizations. I'm thinking about it from a small business point of view. Still have to be considerate of all of the matters and all of the issues which you mentioned, but perhaps there just isn't the scale of, of diversity among their team. So how do companies like that ensure that they're set up in such a way that can welcome people from every group and are mindful of all of those challenges mm -hmm. when they simply just don't have the numbers of people to form those groups themselves? Right. Um, really good question. And and actually, one of the things that I have, I would say, shifted to doing more of is working with smaller organizations. So I'm actually doing a fair amount of work now with startups, uh, with uh, venture capital and private equity backed organizations that are um, really early, obviously, in their business journey overall but helping them think about how do they infuse DEI into the way that they operate and into their people strategies from the beginning. Um, you know, I, I, I think I've seen that uh, the larger companies um, definitely have progress to make, but can we, if, you know, if we switch a little bit and say like, how do we build it uh, into the muscle from the beginning, then it's, it's easier than at the back end trying to work out when you're 300 pounds overweight, right? And so, right. Um, and so I would say there are still a number of things that early stage companies can do in the space. Um, one of them would be to just infuse it into your talent strategies and your processes and systems. So when you're thinking about going out and recruiting from a talent acquisition perspective, how do you build DEI into the schools you're going to or the networks that you're using to recruit your leadership teams or yeah. to hire people. And then similarly, when you're talking about things like talent management, promotions, stretch assignments, et cetera, you know, that that's organic work that you can do no matter what size can do and should do no matter what size your company is. But on the cultural aspects, you're right. Like it's harder to, to form an employee resource group with all those separate groups when you have a small business. What I've seen organizations do, and I and I advise them, is you can have some companies will do just one employee resource group that is broad in scope and is kind of a diversity group, mm. and they talk about different dimensions of diversity and 
and we'll kind of shine a spotlight on um, different underrepresented or marginalized groups to bring awareness. So it, it's a broader approach to it. Many organizations will also do a create a diversity and inclusion steering committee. And this is, I would say, a level up from the employee research group because it's typically leaders yeah. from different functional areas and at different levels that then also that employee resource group would then input into and say, here are our thoughts, here are our, our recommendations on things that could be done. And then that steering committee works more broadly to say, okay, how do we do some of these things from an organizational perspective? Yeah. So even in a smaller company, you still should be building the system uh, from an equitable perspective that will allow you as you do scale and grow um, where it'll be organic and a part of your DNA. So hopefully you won't have these challenges yeah. or they'll be, you know, mitigated to a large extent because you've done the work up front. Yeah, it strikes me that culturally open communication seems to be a critical factor here. Yeah, you know, we talked about the fact that there has to be, first of all, is an acknowledgement that there can be an issue for others, even if you don't see it yourself. So I guess from a small, medium-sized business point of view, that's a great way to look at it. It's, look, first of all, let's open up a conversation, bring people into the conversation, if necessary, bring people from the outside who can offer a different perspective, even if those groups aren't represented within your team. And that in itself is, the, is that first step that's required to, to start the process. Absolutely. I, I I would not underestimate the importance of communication. And it's one of the strategic elements that I advise my clients on quite a bit is that if you're, if you're thinking about building a house and you heard me say earlier that the pillars were workforce, workplace, marketplace, community, the foundation of that house is communication, leadership commitment, mm. um, cross-functional integration, so that kind of integration piece, and then metrics and accountability. So that communication piece is key because what happens is in the absence of you saying or doing anything, two things will happen. One is that people will assume you're doing nothing. And many times organizations are doing things in this space, but they're afraid of talking about it because they're not where they want to be. Yeah. And I always, I go back to transparency, say that, say we're not where we want to be, but then the next thing you have to do is say, here is our plan and our strategy to get there, right? So people will will cut you some slack, so to speak, if they know you acknowledge the issue and that you're working to solve it. So I would say yeah. that's one. And then the second thing they'll do if, if they don't hear you talking about it is they'll go off and start doing things on their own. So a lot of times what I see in organizations is all these disparate and stealth DNI initiatives going on because people are taking it upon themselves to do something in the absence of seeing the organization do it. And that results in chaos. It mm. results in um, conflict that's unnecessary. So that communication piece internally is key. But the second part of communication is communicating externally as well. We talked earlier about how uh, potential recruits, even how um you know, there are a number of, of, of external organizations that are really looking at companies now and holding them to account. So if once again, if they're not sharing what they're doing or what their plans are externally, that also creates unnecessary, um, you know, potential tension points where they'll get called out or 
um, they're losing potential great talent because they're not discussing it or even equipping their, for example, recruiters with knowledge about what they're doing. So when a candidate asks, they can speak up on it. And so that internal and external communication is absolutely critical in this space. And I, I advise my clients that you've got to shy away from feeling like you need to be perfect. It's about progress, not perfection. And yeah. it's about um, having a plan. And and if you have all of those things in place, you typically are a step ahead of those that aren't. Yeah. And, and, and give us an insight into uh, your time at Nike. So there's a company which I think from the outside, they're trying to make an effort to advocate for change. It seems to be foremost in the way that they think about their brand. So is that something that arose naturally out of the culture of that organization? Or was there a conscious decision, for example, over the past few years to make a stand on certain issues in order to provoke the sorts of change which leadership of Nike perhaps believe should come? Was there pressure from the athletes, for example, or is that just culturally within the company that that was what they felt like they needed to do? I, I think it's both. And and then I also share something that I think, you know, I don't I don't know if a lot of people are aware, but I mean it's it's been talked about publicly, but that back to that internal external, there was a little bit of a disconnect at Nike. So Nike, I think everyone knows as this really bold brand externally, and that I think that um is native to the DNA of the company. I mean, the way the company was founded was you know, uh, Phil Knight and and Bill Bowerman saying we like we want to we want to change the game and running and create this amazing running shoe that will allow people to elevate you know their athletic impact and prowess. Right. So from the very beginning, they were about changing the game, um, and so I think that has continued to evolve. They're always looking to move the push the needle to elevate things to be the best. And and so that's definitely true throughout history. And there are many instances where they, you know, stood up for for um, uh, causes that matter. I think you add to that in recent years, the athletes that they have brought on, like the um, LeBron James, the Serena's, the Megan Rapinoe's, the Colin Kaepernick's, right? You, you have a, a group of athletes who are saying, we're more than an athlete. Like we mm-hmm. believe in... And we see and we experience what I said before, all these inequities. So I want, if I'm partnering with you, it's like, how are we like-minded? I want to see that you're also pushing for and advocating for the things that are important and for dismantling some of these, you know, inequitable systems. So I think the athletes have continued to push them to do more. The disconnect though, and like I said, I mean, I'm not sharing anything that um, wasn't talked about publicly, is that internally Nike wasn't doing as much of that. And so kind of over the last year, they've also been called out uh, externally around is your culture and environment what you are advocating for externally? Um, You know, they, they were really pushed on the lack of representation on their senior leadership team. They were, were pushed on the culture and climate. I mean, they're, they're based in Portland, which doesn't have a great reputation, for example, of, uh, for people of color, for example, uh, they've had some incidents of, of of female athletes in particular saying, "No, I wasn't treated in alignment with, you know, what um, what Nike says externally." And so, I think <clears throat> what all that has done is created what I said before a, a recognition and awakening 
around the alignment that has to happen internally and externally. If you're um, saying one thing on the outside and then people aren't experiencing it on the inside, that eventually will come out. Similarly, if you're doing a lot on the inside but not talking about it on the outside, you heard me say earlier, that creates an issue because then people assume you're not doing a lot. So yeah. that internal external alignment, whether it be communication and actions, is really critical. And I think, like I said, Nike had a lot of that innately in their DNA, but they needed to elevate and push it so that what happened internally was more um, reflective of what they were saying externally. One last question. So this is a bit broader. I know, as you said, you're involved now working with various startups. How can technology facilitate some changes? So for example, talk about recruitment. Now, there is a conversation about whether bias is just built into certain advances in technology, for example, around AI. But also, I know there are some great technology platforms now which are helping for example from a talent point of view remove some of that bias inherent in you know decision making and judgments people are making what have you come across that kind of gives you hope for the future from a technological point of view are there any organizations that you're working with or startups that you're working with that you can see are going to make a real difference both in DEI but also just more broadly to the world of work yeah, I mean, I, I think technology will be a game changer in this space and in a number of ways. I mean, you, you mentioned one around kind of talent acquisition and one of the one of the startups that I'm working with right now is called Talenia, and it is an AI powered um, talent acquisition solution. And, and basically what it does is increase the source pool of diversity that organizations um, have access to. So for example, one of the things, particularly in the tech space, believe it or not, but one of the things we hear a lot is there's a, there's a pipeline problem. There's, there's just not yeah. enough diverse talent out there. And and I, I say that that's a fallacy, it's not the case. It's where you're looking for the talent. And what has happened in many organizations is they do have a, a very myopic view of what is talent. They go to the same set of colleges and universities they have um, a very homogeneous set of recruiters. And what we know from data and from human behavior is that when we're looking to fill a job, we go to our network. We go to our go-to set of people that, that may know someone that, that could fill an opening we have. Well, if you have a very homogeneous group of recruiters who are, for example, largely white or largely male, they're going to go to their networks and you basically keep uh, getting what you've been getting. And yeah. so that's what I say. You keep looking where you've been looking, you'll keep getting where you've been getting. So what Telenia does is it goes out and it takes job descriptions from companies and it uploads them into their software and it basically um, optimizes the job description so that it broadens the pool of candidates. So for example, it may say, you know what, if you take these three requirements that you have as required on your job description and you make them preferred, you will get this many more women and people of color. Or if you broaden your geography and say, I'm willing to recruit um, in a 300 mile radius instead of a 50 mile radius, you'll get more veterans or people with disabilities. So it optimizes and it, sh it literally shows like a before and after Mm -hmm. um, of, of the difference in um, rethinking where you're looking and what your parameters are. So I think technology will really create um, these enablers that allow people from all walks of life to 
be a part of the solution and be a part of organizations in ways they never have been before. And to me, one of the biggest game changers in this space is the ability to have remote work. So if you think about things like, um, for example, I'll, I'll use Silicon Valley here in the U.S., you know, it, it's it's very expensive to live in Silicon Valley. Um, it is, uh, it is, I would say, once again, a, a fairly homogeneous part of the country. And so from a talent perspective, there are tons of people who are qualified and would love to work for one of the tech companies there, but they can't afford to, or their family's not there or whatever it is. Well, now when you think about you can't say you believe in DEI if you are not saying, how do I find the talent regardless of where they are? And yeah. then how do I use technology to make sure that we're all, whether it's Zoom, virtual meetings or you know other mechanisms, that they're still a part of the company and actively contributing? And so when I think about, uh, for example, I live in Atlanta, uh, at Georgia. And there are tons of tech companies flooding Atlanta right now. Microsoft has just built an office, Google, Facebook. Um, and, and why? Because Atlanta is a hotbed of diversity, ta- of diverse talent. And they're now saying, okay, I will build satellite offices in different cities around the, the country to bring that talent into the organization. State Farm's another one. They they used to be in the Midwest and Indiana, and they have now created three hubs in Dallas, Atlanta, and Phoenix to say, okay, those are, those are uh, more racially and ethnically diverse cities, a good cost of living, and let's give people choice. And so mm-hmm. I think this, this feeling of, of um, using technology to enable change and choice and flexibility will absolutely be key. And all of that will um, be enablers of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Great. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for your insights and some great advice in there as well. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tamika. And that was my conversation with Tamika Curry-Smith. If you'd like to read more about some of the themes we discussed, I'm going to be writing about it in future work life this week. So make sure you get over to Substack and subscribe. Next week, I've got an absolutely brilliant guest. So make sure you tune in for that. Until then, have a good one.